Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to take it out and turn it to 1 John chapter 2 and 3 today. We're going to cover a little bit of chapter 2, the very end of it, and the first part of chapter 3. 1 John chapter 2 here in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the pew in front of you. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the way a Bible is laid out, 1 John is almost toward the very end of your Bible. So flip back to Revelation and then go backwards just a couple books and you'll find 1 John. We'll be there in chapter 2 here in just a moment. Now as you're getting there, I'd like you to picture something in your mind with me. Go here with me in your imagination. Picture this. You are a child who has grown up in poverty in a third world country. Your child has grown up in poverty in a third world country. Life is extremely hard for you and for the other kids at your orphanage. That's right, you are an orphan. You never knew your parents. You don't even know if they are still alive. Each day is a struggle. Many days you spend hours just thinking because there's nothing else to do. Many days, as you go to bed at night, you are hungry when you fall asleep. And you have accepted that this is your life. There will be no opportunities to better your circumstances. Why would there be? You have no family. You don't go to school. You don't have any friends in high places. There's no hope for the future. Now, on your 10th birthday, you receive a letter from the postman, which is odd because you've never gotten a piece of mail in your entire life. And it's addressed to you by name. And you open the letter. It's from your dad. You have a dad. And you begin to read. My daughter, I have loved you your whole life, even before you were born, but you didn't know it until now. I know your life has been very hard up until now, and I am so sorry but let me tell you about my life and your future. I am the king of a prosperous country where we have everything we need. There are no wars, and we are always protected from evil. My palace sits on a huge piece of land with lots of grass, trees, flowers, and a giant lake full of fish. All kinds of wildlife roam our land freely. I have a bedroom for you in the palace and have been making it ready especially for you, these past ten years. Soon I will send your older brother, the prince, to get you and bring you to me. Watch for him. I have included his picture so you will know him when you see him. When he comes, he will bring you here to live with me, and you will never want for anything another day in your life. P.S. You can bring friends with you. The palace is big enough for many children, but a warning... They might not want to come because they will have to leave everything they have ever known. Now think about what it would be like for you after having read that letter in the next few weeks or months. You would be spending every day waiting at the door or the window looking down the road for that man in that picture that you have. Your older brother, the prince, anxiously awaiting for the time when he would arrive and take you to be with the king in the palace. Now with that in our minds, let's read our passage this morning. 1 John 
starting in chapter 2, verse 28. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This morning from our text, I want to draw your attention to two foundational truths, foundational to the Christian life, and one question that is also foundational to the Christian life. Two foundational truths and one foundational question. The first truth is this, because of Christ, God has adopted us. Because of Christ, God has adopted us. If you are in Christ this morning, if you are a Christian, if Christ is your greatest treasure this morning and you have been baptized into his name, God has adopted you into his family. In verse 2 there, if you look at it with me, verse 2, it says, we are God's children now. You see that? We are God's children now. He has adopted us. And so, if you are in Christ, you have received that letter. You've received it. And you know you are a child of God now, even as you await your true home, even as Jesus is not here physically with us, even as we wait for the day when our faith will be sight. We are God's children now. God adopts us into his family when we come to him through Christ. We are not natural children of God. Right? We have to remember this. We are not natural children of God. We are adopted children. We've been adopted into this family, and it's only by the grace of God and the mercy of God and his love extended to us that we have him as our father, that we can claim a part of this family. We are not natural children, okay? But it's important to know When you come to Christ, when you're saved, it's not just forgiveness that God does for you, okay? It's not just canceling the debt of your sins. He doesn't just forgive you. He embraces you as one of his children, right? He doesn't just forgive you. He embraces you as one of his children. No other religion in the world would dare claim something like this, that we could be children of the Most High, Almighty, Righteous Judge, Creator of the universe, that He would actually say He is our Father and that we are His children. Tim Keller likes to say, who in the world would dare wake a king up in the middle of the night to ask for a glass of water? No one would dare do such a thing unless that someone was one of his kids. No other religion in the world would dare say that we could claim being that kind of relationship with God the Father. 
that we could have that kind of relationship with him. And yet we do. It's not just forgiveness that he gives you. It's an embrace into the family as your father. And it's very different the way that we relate to God as our father versus the way we relate to a judge or a police officer. He's not just an authority figure. The way you relate to a father is very different. Martin Luther once said, The love of a mother is stronger than all filth and fevers of a child. In a similar way, God's love for us is stronger than our filth. Though we are sinners, we remain, despite our filth, children of God. Nor do we fall from His grace on account of all our sins. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. No other religion in the world would dare claim such a thing. In Ezekiel 16, we see this beautiful picture of the adoptive love of the Father toward us. I would encourage you to read it later. You don't have to turn there right now. But Ezekiel chapter 16, there is this baby left in a field to die, wallowing in its own blood, until a man walks by and in his compassion takes that baby into his arms and takes her home and nourishes her and cleans her and clothes her and cares for her and feeds her. And she grows to become beautiful because she is so loved. You see, she is not loved because she is beautiful. She is beautiful because she is loved. And we need to hear that this morning. For those of us in Christ, if you are in Christ this morning, you are not loved because you are beautiful. As if something that was in you caused God to love you. No, you are beautiful because you are loved. Do you see the difference there? It makes all the difference in the world. We are not beautiful and then God loves us. We are beautiful because God has set his love on us. You see, we are royalty. We are children of the king. But the world does not see it. Did you see that in verse 1? In verse 1 there it says, the reason the world does not know us is that it does not know him. It did not know him. And so the world is not going to treat you like royalty. Don't expect that if you come to Christ. Even though you are, even though you are the child of the greatest king that there ever will be, the king of the whole universe, you will not be treated as such. When Jesus came, he's the son of God, and yet they didn't even recognize him. He created them, and they did not recognize him. They killed him. Do not expect to be treated as a child of the king by the world. The world will not recognize it. The world will look at you and your contentment and your joy and they will not understand. And they will not treat you as a child of the king. And yet that is what you are. That is what you are. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, the NIV says, lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Y'all, I'm not lying. This is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. I'm memorizing the NIV. I can't get it out of my head that way. They lavished on us that we should be called children of God. This is mind-boggling. This is awe-inspiring. This should cause your heart to sing. 
children of the creator of the universe, children of the God of everything, children of the the almighty, righteous, holy judge, even though I know the, the dark depths of my heart, I know all the ways that I've messed up and yet I'm his child? I mean, this is the greatest news in all the world. And it should make our hearts sing. We are royalty. The world will not recognize it, but we are royalty. Now, foundational truth number two. When Christ appears, we will be changed, our text tells us. When Christ appears, we will be changed. When he finally does come, we are looking for him. When he finally does come, we will be changed, the Bible tells us. Jesus said he would return one day. We eagerly await that return, those of us who know him. And when he returns, it says we will be changed. Did you see that? Verse 2, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. We will be like him. Now, how? How will we be like him? Well, the first way we will be changed is bodily. In our bodies, we will be changed. Philippians 3 tells us as much. Our bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body. And think about Jesus' glorious body. Now, First of all, we need to say, yes, you will have a body in heaven. You will have a physical body for all eternity. Now, you might think of those who have already passed on. You might think of my my grandparents who have already died. They are not with their bodies right now. Their soul is separated from their bodies. When we're at the funeral, you see the body, but the soul is not there anymore. But when Christ returns, body and soul will be reunited, and the bodies... The bodies will be changed to be like Christ's glorious body, indestructible, never to die again. No more pain, no more sickness, no more injuries, no more sin, no more desires to sin. Thank God for that. No more flesh pulling at you in the opposite direction of what you really want to do, the opposite direction of your spirit. Our bodies will be transformed. Jesus, the Bible says, was the firstborn from among the dead. When he raised back to life, he got that new, indestructible, glorified body. But it was a body, y'all. It was a body, a physical one. Jesus had people touch him. It was almost as if he was saying, can a ghost do this? Okay. Jesus ate food after he rose from the dead with his disciples. Okay. We will have physical bodies For all eternity. This idea that we will be some ethereal spirit floating on a cloud for all eternity has crept in from some non-Christian philosophy and is not in the Bible. The Bible tells us we will be physically present with God, with Jesus, and with one another for all eternity. Our bodies will be recognizable. Jesus was recognizable when he returned. But they will be different. They will be glorified. They will be transformed. And they will be in perishable. And so our bodies will be changed, but not just our bodies, our status will be changed. The Bible says right now as children, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Heirs. We don't use that term too often in modern day America, but an heir is a child who is set to gain an inheritance, right? The heir gains an inheritance from their parents, from their father. And Romans 8 tells us, wonder of all wonders, we are co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. 
heirs. And so think about it. In a proper adoption today, in a proper adoption, the adopted child has just as much a place in the family as a biological child. Just as much a right to an inheritance as a biological child in a proper adoption. Okay? That child is just as much a part of the family as a biological child. And Scripture uses this inherit language all over the place. You've seen it before, probably. For instance, the Bible tells us the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, why would it use that word? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's because God's kingdom, eternal life, is something he passes down to his children as an inheritance. All right? And so the flip side is also true. Scripture tells us the meek will inherit the earth. Right? The meek will inherit the earth. God is going to give us all things to enjoy. Peter says some of the same things. In 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so we are heirs of God, and we will receive our inheritance when Jesus returns. But a final question there, why would we be like him, right? It says when Christ appears, we will be like him, but why? Well, the text tells you. It's right there in the text. Why will we be like him? Because we shall see him as he is. Now, what does that mean? Where's the connection there? How come when I see Jesus as he is, I will become like him? How come? Why? Well, it's because God has set the world up to work in such a way that you become what you behold. You become what you behold. Right? We become what we behold. For instance, in the Old Testament, God would tell the people over and over again, if you create idols and worship them and behold them, right? if you look to them and meditate on them, you'll become like them. You'll become to where you can't speak. They can't speak. You won't be able to say the things that you're supposed to say. You'll become to where you can't think. They can't think. They're just an idol. You will become to where you can't think like you're supposed to think. You can't feel like you're supposed to feel. And so in Psalm 115.8, this is just one of many places, in Psalm 115.8, God says, those who make them become like them, idols. And so do all who trust in them, because we become what we behold. But again, the flip side is also true. If we behold the glory of God, we will become like him, Scripture tells us. So in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we read, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, into His image, from one degree of glory to another. If you spend time beholding the glory of God, meditating on the glory of God, you will slowly but surely, from one degree to another, become like God. You will become more holy more compassionate, more just, more righteous, more loving if you behold God. And so when Christ comes, when Christ returns, those who are truly His, those who are truly His will behold Him in His glory. And when you behold Him in His glory, when you see Him as He is, you become like Him, 
You are changed. We become what we behold. Now, finally, those are two foundational truths. And I said one foundational question. Here's the question. When Christ comes, how will you react? When Christ comes, how will you react? Look at verse 28 with me. Chapter 2, verse 28. It says, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And so there will be two reactions when Christ comes. One reaction is confident joy, and the other reaction is shrinking in shame. Which one will you react with? Two reactions. Now, when I was little, I can think of two very different reactions I had to times when my dad would come home. So, for instance, if my dad was on a trip, sometimes my dad would go overseas. He used to go to Australia every now and then for his work. When my dad would come home from a trip, I would be at the door, and if I knew he was going to be back within you know, the next few hours, I'd just wait and look and look and look and anxiously await because I knew he was coming home. I hadn't seen him for a while. I was going to get to play with him. He was going to give me a hug. He probably brought me a surprise from wherever he was at. Right? I was excited for him to be there. I was eagerly anticipating it. Now, contrast that with the days when I would get in trouble with my mom, and she says, go up to your room and wait till your father gets home. Oh, good gracious. Like, that was worse than the actual punishment when he got there, the waiting, right? It was horrible. Dad was coming home, and I knew what was coming when Dad got home. I, that was shrinking in shame right there. Two very opposite reactions, okay? Now, some of you might know this reference, and some of you might not, so I'm going to explain it, but the greatest movie of all time is The Lord of the Rings. I mean, obviously, but the greatest movie of all time, Lord of the Rings. And in the second installment of The Lord of the Rings movies and in the books... King Theoden is on his throne, but his mind is taken over by a spell, by the evil sorcerer Saruman. His mind has been taken over, and King Theoden is at an age where he should be wise, full of energy. He should be making decisions. He should be strong. But all he can do is lurch over on his throne and mumble and agree with whatever his evil advisor, Wormtongue, who is a puppet of the sorcerer Saruman, Whatever his evil advisor advises him of, all he can do is mumble and agree because his mind has been taken over. Okay? His mind has been entrapped in this, this spell. Well, the good wizard, the god figure often in the Lord of the Rings stories, Gandalf, he comes to King Theoden and he stands before his throne. And through his wizardry, his good wizardry, he releases Theoden from this spell that the evil sorcerer had upon his mind. He releases him from the spell. And finally, the king stands up and opens his eyes and sees for the first time in a long time and breathes the free air again. And he, he takes a hold of his sword, and you can tell he's getting his strength back and his wits are coming back about him. And those who are loyal to him, those who were loyal to him, rejoice to see this return of the king, especially his niece, Eowyn, who has been by his side this whole time, completely distressed about what was happening. They, they rejoiced to see the return of the king. But how does Wormtongue react when the king gets his wits about him? He shrinks in shame because he knows what's coming for what he did to the king. The same thing is true for us. How will we react when Jesus comes back? And so there's a question that comes from that question. 
The question is, how can we have confident joy and not shrink in shame when Jesus comes? How? Well, it says it again right here in the text. It says, verse 28, abide in him so that when he comes, you will have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. Abide in him. What does that mean? Well, that means continue in faith. Continue to trust him. Continue to treasure Jesus above all things. It does not mean whoever is good enough can have confidence when Jesus comes. If you've been a good person, then you can have confidence. That's not what it means. And it shows you in the text that's not what it means. Look at verse 3. In verse 3 it says, Everyone who thus hopes in him. Not everyone who thus does a bunch of good deeds. Everyone who thus hopes in him. Or look at verse 29. In verse 29 it says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And that's past tense, y'all. It's not future tense. It does not say whoever practices righteousness will be born of him as if the new birth depended on you practicing righteousness. No, whoever practices righteousness has been born of him. All right? Outward righteousness is a sign of a heart that has been changed by Jesus. It does not produce heart change. Does that make sense? The righteousness that he's talking about here is the righteousness that comes from faith, not the righteousness that causes God to look at you and say, oh, that person's being really good. I better save them. It's not how it works. Right? Outward righteousness is a sign of a heart that has already been changed by Jesus. It does not produce heart change. It's evidence of it. And that makes all the difference in the world. If it were left up to us, that would be crippling. It would be crippling if it was up to us to be good enough to earn our salvation. How could you ever know? How could you ever be sure you had done enough? You couldn't. Listen, 1 John is all about assurance of your salvation. And here's the key to being assured of your salvation. Number one, realize it does not depend on how good you are. You cannot be good enough to make God save you. You are only saved by grace through faith. And that's how I can be assured of my salvation. That I, that's how I can stand confident before God that I'm going to heaven when I die. Because it's not up to how many sins I've committed and how many times I've done good things. And Maybe it's 51%, 49 good deeds. It's not. I know I'm going to heaven when I die. Why? Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. He finished it. It is finished. And so I have all the confidence in the world of that. The last words of Jesus were, it is finished. The last words of Buddha were, strive continually. Pick your master. Pick your master. Church is helping each other hold on to Jesus. Helping each other abide. That's what it means. Abide. Hold on to your faith until the end. That's what we're doing here. That's what church is all about. We are helping each other hold on to Jesus until the time when we can let go and rest in him for all eternity. That's what we're here for. Do you want to be a part of that? Do you want to be a part of something like that? 
I do. I can't live without it for the rest of my life. What will your reaction be when Christ returns? Let's pray. Dear Lord, help us to abide in you. For those of us who have put our faith in Christ, help us to hold on. Help us to abide in Jesus. Help us to trust him every day. Trust, trust, trust. We trust you, God. We trust your son, Jesus. We trust your spirit. But God, if there is someone in here, I know there is. I know there are people in here who do not know that feeling. But God, I want them to have it. I know you want them to have it. You want them to rejoice with confidence when Jesus returns and not shrink in shame and fear. God, I pray that you would pierce their heart with your truth. Only your truth can pierce the hearts of people. Only you can open up hearts and open up eyes to the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, to save those who are walking on their way to death. I pray that you would. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.